Good morning. You guys okay? I'm not, but I'm glad you guys all are. That's great. Um, man, I have just not slept well all week leading up to this morning. So, um, for those of you that are new to Anthem, uh, my name's Chris, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this morning is probably a more serious Sunday than most due to the topic that we're going to be teaching through. Uh, and so I'm going to go a little bit long and I'm going to read most of what I have this morning just so I can uh, stick to my notes. But um, my prayer for us this morning is that we can honestly approach this time with open hearts and open minds. And um, it's interesting, like, prefacing last week leading into this week, uh, that what Paul is instructing, he's talking about these men that were coming into the gathering, lifting up their hands, their holy hands in worship and in prayer, but yet their hearts were angry towards one another. And my prayer coming into this morning is just that wherever you stand on the continuum of this subject, that we can come into this morning with a clean heart, uh, approaching this time just in all humility. And um, I will just preface this by saying, I don't claim that I'm the best theologian and that I've got this figured out. Um, I've tried to navigate this most of my life. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I actually grew up in a tradition of church that was very different than what we practice here. Um, the tradition I grew up in had female senior pastors, like it was just a totally different tradition. I went to Bible school in that tradition, I came out of that, I actually, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more, but I actually spent most of my life coming from a, a perspective that was all one way and trying to find center in it unlike some of you that maybe have come from a perspective that's on the other side and you're trying to make sense of all of this. And so for me, um, this subject isn't anything new. I grew up in it, was raised in it, and um, it's not weird to me to talk about it. But for some in this room, that's not the tradition you grew up in, and I fully understand and respect the fact that it's hard to talk about. And as a church, man, this is a defining moment for us. And so I want to pray for us and just ask the spirit of the living God to come upon this time and to move in our hearts. Would you pray with me? I want you to just take 10 seconds and ask the Lord to quiet your heart before him this morning. Jesus, you say in your word that your peace you leave with us, that you give it to us, not as the world gives, um, and to not let our hearts be troubled. And I just pray this morning, Jesus, that our hearts just be given to you. I pray that you'd move in this time, that you'd open up our hearts to hear from you this morning, God, that you'd protect us from anger and quarreling and all the things that the enemy wants to use to cause division in your church. And in fact, I pray that you'd breathe new life into your church, Jesus. 
None of us in this room want anything less than the church to be on fire for you, the exact church that you bled and died for. And so um, this morning, God, I pray your hand be upon this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been in a study in First and Second Timothy, and throughout our study in this series, we've tried to reiterate each and every week um, that when you read the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, these epistles, that it's important to understand that they're rooted in a particular context. Like these are actually real letters written to real people in history addressing real issues. And so part of our interpretive responsibility and goal is to sort of re reverse engineer some of the context that these uh, scriptures were wrote in. In other words, we can't know everything as it was happening, but we can take clues from the text and other historical sources to try to put together a picture of what the context was like. And so that helps us to kind of discern and determine how this letter continues to speak to you and I today. So part of the real power of the scriptures is the power, the, the ability of the scriptures to be both rooted in a particular context and yet be timeless in how the they actually translate and speak to you and I today. And we've been learning this as we've looked at the letters of, that Paul wrote to this protege, his companion, Timothy. And today is no different. In fact, I want to remind us of this very strongly today because we're gonna look at, at what has historically been the most controversial topic in, in all of scripture in all time. The most hotly debated topic today is this one that we're gonna dig into this morning. And the blessing and curse of being a church that's gonna go verse by verse through passages of scripture is that we aren't gonna skirt difficult stuff and we're gonna hit it head on and try our best to navigate these things. So I sort of have backed myself into a corner by even entering First and Second Timothy. Like we gotta deal with it. Anthem, and this is just a quick caveat before we get in. I just want you to know that I love you, deeply. I love this church. I've never felt sick to my stomach. Any message that I've given, hundreds of messages in 14 years of my life. But I haven't slept well this week. I've been nervous about what your reactions would be to what my opinion is, to where our elders have landed on the subject. It's just literally tore me up all week. I've received emails and texts already up to this point for people that were for and against. And it's just caused like turmoil in me. And I care about this church a ton. Again, I don't profess to be a theologian that knows everything. I'm a man that's desperately trying to obediently follow Jesus the best that I can. But one of the things I've loved most about this church in 14 years is that we are a church made up of people from different backgrounds many different theological backgrounds at many differing stages in our faith journey. And that means there are some of you that may be a bit indifferent to what I'm gonna to present to you this morning, and you may not have a strong opinion about this. It also means that there are some of you that are gonna have a very strong opinion about what I'm gonna um, address this morning. There are some of you that, that are gonna feel relieved and rejoice in what I'm addressing this morning, presenting. And for some of you, what I'm gonna talk about may even present some level of like anger or anxiety in you, like an emotional reaction or a strong opposition to. And some of you may feel a rise of fear, whereas some of you may feel like a rise of hope. 
This morning is not about getting aside. And so really what, what pains me the most about this topic is that I'm not a guy that normally takes sides. Uh, historically, I'm a dude that's just gonna, we're gonna talk about the scripture, try our best to parse it out. And I might have an opinion, which I'll express this morning, um, but I'm not a guy that's gonna try to take sides. Like I, I, it actually eats me up inside to know that even landing somewhere with this topic is marginalizing some of you while it's actually presenting hope to others. And that's a weird dichotomy within me to try to have to wrestle with this morning. But though I know this will fall differently on different people in this room, um, I actually have more of a frustration in, inside of me because I see an equal amount of pride and desire for my way in both sides, which often presents Christians from unity and finding a way together. And so here's what I know, Anthem. As a church family, I believe the Lord has prepared us for this season now. That we have spent several years as a church wrestling through hard changes and circumstances and constantly looking for ways to love each other and be united on the main things in a world that seeks to divide us on open-handed issues. We believe this subject to be an open-handed theological issue, meaning it's not a salvation issue, it doesn't compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, Close-handed issues are theological debates that we would actually divide over, but I hope this is not for us. I hope we can be a church that will step into hard conversations without all the answers and yet possess a willingness to work out our theology together under the lordship of Jesus. Amen? I want us to not view this as a bomb dropping with some sort of instant change that happens in Anthem. Like, please do not take it as that. Our church elders have been in a conversation working through this specific topic for six years. Six years. We wrote a bulk of the position paper that will be available on this table over here six years ago and have now just decided to bring this to light being as we're teaching through fourth, uh, first and second Timothy. So we spent a lot of time studying, praying, talking, processing this subject. We acknowledge that not everybody in our church has been on this journey with us, and it would actually be foolish to teach this today and begin to change our practice immediately or do something crazy starting next week. So I want to sort of diminish that level of fear in you. I want us to view this as the beginning of a process and a conversation as a church. We're landing the plane, so to speak, with a position, however, we want to pastor our church through this, which that takes time and care. This requires conversation, prayer, good communication with you on this process. We want to take that journey. Unfortunately, some of you may look at this as a demarcation and a reason to break fellowship from our church, but might I challenge you that I believe this dialogue is good and I believe this dialogue is necessary. And by no means do I or our elders assume that we do everything right and have the corner on perfect theology. But we deeply love God's word and we deeply love you guys. We desire to stay in community with one another and conversation can be used to be a catalyst to challenge and sharpen one another even when we stand on differing sides of a theological discussion. So the tension that exists that I can feel in this room on some theological matters is actually really healthy for us to wrestle with. 
Yet we live in this culture that tells us to run to find the most comfortable place that thinks exactly like I do, does exactly what I want them to do. And I think we're blessed to be in a church with people that come from different, differing theological perspectives on various issues that have split denominations for years. And I love the fact that we stay together. We're ready for this. In fact, we've all navigated as a church in 14 years enough circumstances and difficult things that I believe the Lord has prepared us to be a people that will walk in humility and devotion to Jesus, to prayer, and to a commitment to only break fellowship over salvific issues that bring into question the gospel of Jesus and the deity of Christ, of which we do not believe this to be one of them. This will be a defining moment for our church, and I will tell you this. I have fairly consistent ongoing conversations with most pastors spanning a hundred mile radius of this city. Some are tabling this discussion for another day. Some are talking through it with their elders and leaders as we speak. Many of them that I sit with are even aligning with us in our belief, but fear to put the belief into practice because of the same fear that I have in me today. How will it marginalize others? And as we've entered into teaching through First and Second Timothy, we believe that it was an opportune time for our church to know where we stand that will inform our practice. And I want to remind you this morning also, this isn't a slippery slope to becoming theologically progressive. I think that's a horrible argument. This is an honest look at Scripture under the Lordship of Jesus, submitting ourselves not to cultural pressure or to public opinion, but to what the Scriptures teach. The culture will always cause us to take a deeper look into scripture to better understand why we believe what we do and how we practice that belief the way we do. The days of the church doing things just because somebody told them to are long gone. We need to be grounded and founded. And so this is a position we've established in order to give Anthem CDA clarity of mission and direction that will serve Anthem CDA for years to come. And with the amount of people that ask us where we stand on this position, we thought it would be appropriate to share that with you. This hasn't been a, this hasn't been a carefree conversation for our elders. It's been a thoughtful and prayerful discussion spanning years. In fact, we didn't even wanna teach on the subject until there was consensus among our elders on our position that we could release a statement in a position to you that was consistent with what we actually believed and that each of us could defend it. I've watched our elders and their wives wrestle with this subject, toil over it, pray, read, challenge, grapple with the position until we felt as though it was biblically accurate and honoring of our church body. And so I also wanna remind you this morning that there's three primary views with this text that I'm not gonna take a ton of time with. But within those three views, there's dozens of other perspectives. Like there are so many varying perspectives on this issue. And I don't believe any of the three views necessarily to be right or wrong. I actually dislike labels and I hate being limited to one of three views because many assumptions that are made within a primary view of sorts that may not totally encompass your thoughts, um, but, but oftentimes they rather make you ascribe to other beliefs because you're in a category and you have to try to fit into it. And so I hate the fact that there's categories to this. But there are categories. Historically, there's three primary perspectives and variations of that within it. There's a view that's called complementarianism. There's one that's called soft complementarianism. It's kind of in the middle. And then there's an egalitarian perspective. The complementarian would hold to a very literal view of this passage. 
The egalitarian would hold to a more contextual reading of this text that sees this more as written to a specific church at a specific time, not necessarily translating to today. And a soft complementarian is sort of a blending of the two. And I will tell you this this morning, all three of them have pitfalls and you can shoot holes in them. They're really hard. Pastors, theologians have been divided over this for years. Studied people more than I. So, with all of that preface, are you guys okay diving in? All right. First Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I just, I, I thought you needed all of that, okay? I'm sorry. I appreciate that. Uh, give me about 30 minutes. We'll see if that's still the case. Um, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's fun, huh? All right. Paul has quite a bit to say about women in this passage. So it's bound to make the skin of most of those women in this room probably crawl. Um, and certainly will probably do the same thing for some of you men. So let's go over the list. He says that women should dress modestly, refrain from adorning themselves with things like braided hair, gold, pearls, expensive clothes. So in kind of an unhealthy religious culture, which some of us may have grown up in, this has often been interpreted as putting women in an impossible position where they are to be attractive, but like not too attractive, right? Um, Like we don't want you to go too far. And some of you may have grown up in some of those unhealthy religious cultures that basically told you that you're not permitted to be unattractive, but you're also not permitted to be too much. And where's the line in this? And so as women, you're kind of expected to live in this middle ground. That can be really difficult. He also says that women must be silent in church, that they're not to teach in the worship gathering, that they're to come under the authority of a man. And then to top it all off, Paul says that women are the daughter of Eve, who is the original troublemaker, right? But he ends with, however, redemption can be found in childbearing. So are there any ladies in the house that are just ticked off with Paul at this point? A bit confusing. So on the surface, this could be taken to mean that women are second-class citizens who would do well to not draw too much attention to themselves and need to get on with having children. Like, that's their purpose, right? Like, at face value, that assumption can be made. And certainly, many well-meaning Christians over the years have done just that with this passage. And what we want to do is try to seek to understand the Scriptures. In fact, most of our Western culture over the past several decades there, there are these sort of assumed gender narratives about how men and how women behave. Men are supposed to be the macho thug guys that can fix everything with their fists, right? While women are supposed to be these sort of emotional darlings who have little to worry about in life except clothes and hairstyles, and I know that's generally speaking. 
But a lot of times the narrative that we receive is exactly that, that we as men are told that men don't cry. And if somebody hurts you, just punch them in the face. Like you gotta stand up and you gotta be a man. And these are the sort of gender narratives in the Western culture that we live in today. And then this passage in particular has kind of become the classic proof text for a Christianized version of that narrative, which is to say that men are the people who are the ones who are in charge, they make all the decisions, then worry about all the real stuff of life, while women, they have children, they make sure that dinner is ready, and if you grew up in the American church, that was a lot of Christian teaching growing up that was directed like this. And maybe we skirted around it a little bit, but it's kind of like, you know, you should look good, but not too good. You should provide for your man by having dinner ready, and then everything will be fine. And this has kind of been the general narrative. And so I want to unpack this a little bit, because we have to really ask, does the Apostle Paul in the Bible as a whole really think about women this way? That's a key question, and so here's what I want you to understand. The Bible is an ancient text. Therefore, it has to be interpreted. The Bible was written for us, but not always written directly to us. So it simply does not work to always say the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's a really bad hermeneutic when it comes to scripture. Hermeneutic is basically a fancy word for the lens by which we interpret and we understand the scriptures. And so if our hermeneutic is, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, that's a really bad way of approaching scripture and seeking to understand it because there's a lot of things that the Bible says that we do not do today as a result of our cultural understanding. For instance, the Bible says in the Old Testament that if a woman is found to not be a virgin, she's to be brought to the door of her father's house and stoned to death. Do we do that today? No, we would agree that that was a contextual we have to contextualize that and say that was for that moment. Or if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. Or women should wear head coverings when they pray or prophesy, otherwise they dishonor the Lord. And if a woman does not wear a head covering, then she should cut her hair short or shave her head. These are not things that we actually practice, but the Bible says. And so there's lots of passages like this that we would understand to be cultural in, na in nature or even for that time, but not necessarily for today but we can de derive meaning and purpose from these passages. And so what we might have to ask really like key and critical questions, and one of those is this, are the things that Paul says about women in this passage intended as principles for all churches and all women for all time, or is there a specific context that's kind of driving these very specific instructions for women? And so to help us tackle that question and sort of discern what it is that Paul might be saying, I wanna give you two possible frameworks to discern this. So come into the classroom for a little bit. We talked about a hermeneutic, a kind of lens by which we seek to interpret scripture. That's how we kind of take the scripture and we begin to pull meaning out of it. It's called hermeneutic. So distinct from that is what I'll call a, a framework, like a framework for discernment. How do we discern that what we're reading is truth? And I want to give you two kinds of discernment methods that are popular. The first framework is what's historically known as sola scriptura, which literally means scripture alone, right? Now, this framework operates under the conviction that the only thing we need to determine truth is the Bible itself. So this framework would say that all the answers to all of life's most pressing and difficult questions are found in the scriptures if you will just look close enough. That's sola scriptura. That's hard to argue with because it sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? 
But the truth is, it kind of limits what we have access to in order to help us discern truth. And when we make the claim that, that we're using scripture alone to discern truth, it really tends to discourage any questions that somebody might bring to the table. And so it tends to lead to sort of a surface reading of a text. In other words, when you have this conviction for this framework of discernment using sola scriptura, it tends to discourage any questions about the passage, which then leads us to say, well, that's what the Bible says, and the, so that's how it has to be. And it kind of moves us away from any interpretive work in the scriptures. Are, are you with me at all? Like some of this, like some of you are loving this, some of you are hating this. I, I get it. Hang with me for a little bit. Let's just say we use scripture alone for discernment in trying to figure out what Paul might be saying in this text. So even if we use scripture alone, I think that we end up, what we end up with is that we see throughout scripture, women play this key role in the proclamation of the gospel and the spreading of the gospel. And so when we understand scripture in its context, we see that scripture regularly pushes the envelope to, to sort of dismantle this version of a very strict patriarchy that was present in the ancient world. So even if we use that framework for discernment, I think we still find that something else is going on in this passage. For example, in Genesis 2.18, it says that God made a suitable helper for Adam. And a lot of people have said, okay, this means that the male is primary, the female is secondary. Like males are Batman and females are Robin, right? Like every superhero needs some sort of like a female counterpart. But check this out. The Hebrew phrase that we use to interpret uh, the, in English as a suitable helper is the Hebrew phrase, Azar Konegdo. Quite literally, what this means is that God created an equal strength facing Adam, is what it means in the Hebrew. All the ladies in the house are like, amen, right? So in Genesis, we see this definite distinction between the genders. There's a man and a woman. Like, we're not going to argue that. There's man and woman. There's no other genders. They're different but equally made in the image of God. But there's an equal strength in them. And so God created an equal strength who was facing Adam. And so very early on, even in the creation story itself, the scripture is trying to uphold the strength of women. Women are recorded in all four gospels as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. You would not be a believer in Jesus Christ today had it not been for those women. Also, by the way, early in the first century when rumors of the resurrection were kind of circling around and everybody's trying to figure out and wondering if the resurrection actually happened, a lot of Hebrew people were saying, no, they, the, the, the Christians, just made this up. Like, it's just a story that they made up because they needed a better narrative about their Messiah. Like, they had to create something. But historically, you would never make up a story at this time and put women as the first witnesses or the key part of your story. Like, it doesn't make sense. You wouldn't do that. So, so the fact that women in all four gospel accounts are recorded as the first witnesses to the resurrection actually gives us some historical credibility to the actual physical resurrection of Jesus. Are you guys okay? Okay. So culturally speaking, if, if you were making up a story, you would have never placed women as the first witnesses in your story. It just would not have made sense culturally. And yet, here we have in all four gospel accounts, women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. 
And then actually Paul himself, speaking of women as apostles and deacons in Romans 16, as he's closing out his letter and he thanks them for their work and spread, the spreading of and the proclamation of the gospel and the good news. And then Paul himself in Corinthians expects women to participate in worship through prayer and prophecy. He tells the church in Galatia that gender divisions have ended in Christ along with social status and race and other things that were dividing them. And then Mary of Bethany sits at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10, which is a clear sign of her being a fellow disciple with the men. She's learning at the feet of Jesus in order to follow the way of Jesus. We have women like Priscilla teaching Apollos, a man, in Acts chapter 18. We have women like Deborah, who was a judge and commanded the, the Israelite army. And so even if you take sola script, script, scriptura as a framework for discernment, it's clear that something else is going on in this passage in 1 Timothy because it simply doesn't jive with the rest of Paul's writings or the rest of scripture as a whole. Side note. This is actually a very great example of the dangers of narrowly focusing like on one single passage or a single verse without using the totality of scripture to actually try to figure out your point, to discern through all of scripture. I heard somebody recently say that I thought was really wise, that no preacher should ever just preach from one single passage of scripture, but rather we should always have the whole witness of scripture in mind. So what is scripture as a whole moving us toward and pointing us toward? So one framework of discernment is sola scriptura, which itself is limiting in how we discern the truth. But I think even if that is our preferred method, even if that's what you adhere to, you've still gotta see that something else is going on in Timothy. The second framework that I wanna give you is one that's called Wesley's quadrilateral, sorry. Kind of a hard word to say. But John Wesley had these four categories for discernment that he used to identify when he was trying to discern truth. And so I'm gonna put up this uh, diagram so you guys can see this because scripture is still at the core. Is that? Oh, okay, there we go. So it recognizes scripture as, as the primary authority and the foundation for all belief and practice. So scripture is still a key player in how we discern truth. But within scripture, we can actually see reason and tradition and experience to discern truth. And this is a great model to bring up when people ask how we can know truth at all or when the people tell you that scripture contradicts itself. People don't understand that there are other resources we can pull from to help make sense of the scriptures. I can't tell you the amount of commentaries and things I read throughout the week and studying church history in order to even get into a message because I just want to know the context. I want to know what was going on. What were they feeling? Why was the message being taught when it was? How has the church responded to this over 2,000 years? And so we can use tradition, we use the creeds, classical statements of faith, historical Christian orthodoxy. We can use reason, like is this logical? Does it make sense? Is it reasonable? We can use experience, like if scriptural teaching is true and affirmed by tradition and aligned with reason, then it actually should revive our personal experience with Jesus. And so how has it changed us? And John Wesley believed that we cannot have reasonable assurance of truth unless we have experienced it personally. And so with this framework, these four pieces work together to help us discern truth. And so when we read and look at scripture, we're actually allowed to ask questions. We can pull from the collective wisdom of the church over time in order to help us discern truth and ask, really, like what have our brothers and sisters in the past said about this passage? 
And the key point in that is past. I'm not talking about what some dude tweeted this last week. I'm saying, let's go back centuries. How has the church responded to this over centuries? And you'll find that often the people of God kind of move one way or the other. If you look back in history, you see one generation, the pendulum swings this way. And then you see another generation and the pendulum swings this way. And it just kind of bounces back and forth. And so as we look back over church history, what we can do is say like, man, how do we avoid this way and that way? And how do we discern and find the middle? Or where has the church about landed over 2,000 years of history? How has the church navigated these issues for centuries? And you see throughout history, there's a wide range of interpretation on a whole slew of subjects. And so in light of this, if Paul is really saying that women shouldn't be able to teach in the worship gathering, is that reasonable? Like, I'll just ask that question. Is it reasonable to believe that, that God would exempt half of the population from ministry in his name? I don't believe so. And then experience shows us that women are capable and strong leaders, that they're good communicators, that they're good organizers, artists, activists, the list can go on and on and on. The women have played key role, key roles, both in the church and outside of the church for centuries. And then tradition, including the earliest traditions given to us in scripture, show us that women have always played key roles in the proclamation of the gospel. And so I believe with conviction that Paul's not saying here that women should be silent and just take their place. But that raises another really key and important question. If Paul isn't saying that, then what is it that Paul's actually saying? Because there most definitely is a message that Paul is communicating here. We cannot skirt that. It's important to note that even in verse 12, Paul is forbidding something. We can't, like, anybody that would write this off and believe that that's just not for us at all, I would have questions about it. I think Paul is discerning something, forbidding something. I don't care where you land on that continuum of what it is that he's forbidding, you can't walk away from this and think that he's not addressing or warning something. So what's Paul saying? Again, context, context, context. So regarding clothing, once you decide that Paul is not classifying women as second-class citizens, then you have to sort of seek to understand what Paul is saying, particularly regarding his prohibition of clothing. There's evidence that expensive clothing, gold, fancy hairdos, which I guess back then equated to braiding your hair, <laughs> these were things that were practiced by rich Ro Roman women, like as signs of social status even. And remember, this is located in a community. It's in Ephesus, and Ephesus is occupied by the Romans. And so this is a group of Hebrew Christians trying to figure out what it means to be the people of God in a Roman-occupied city. And so there were some Roman women who had converted to Christianity, and they were coming to the gatherings of believers and kind of showing off their social status through expensive clothing and things like that. In other words, they were treating the Sunday gathering more like a fashion show in order to show off their own status and therefore kind of shaming everybody else that could not afford what it is they had. And so Paul, desiring that there would be no division in the body of Christ, actually encourages these Ephesian women to refrain from wearing that kind of clothing to the gathering. The problem was not their braided hair. In fact, most women at that time had their hair braided and pulled back against their heads. The issue was this conjunction that follows in this statement. 
It was braided hair and it was gold and pearls. And the problem was that they were putting things like gold and pearls in their hair and they were wearing expensive clothing. They were dressed as an intentional distraction. They're making a statement and they're separating out themselves from, from different classes and they're belittling others in the gathering of the believers that couldn't afford to do the same. And so Paul is saying that this isn't what should characterize you, is what he's saying. The, the, the passage does, uh, says don't adorn yourself with all of that stuff, but what does he say? He says, but with what is proper for women to profess godliness with good works. And Paul separates, even in the sentence, he separates the, the, the sentence with an M dash, right? That long dash that exists in there, meaning he's giving an, an example of what would be proper for them to adorn themselves with. And what does he say? Good works. He's saying you should be characterized by your good deeds, that it's better to have your life be marked by your good deeds versus be marked by what you wore or be marked by your status. That translates to today, doesn't it? They'd been vocalizing their freedom in Christ and then choosing to make statements through their dress and their actions in order to make a statement about their freedom, which actually lacked the heart and the attitude of Jesus. They actually wanted to revolt. It was prideful and arrogant. Your dress can actually reflect what you value. That's a fact even today, both on men and women, right? And so Paul's addressing the fact that men are doing a lousy job keeping the unity in the church, they're quarreling and they're anger, angry with each other. They're yelling and shouting at one another, even while they're praying. And, and that women are being just as disruptive, but in a very different way. And these people were setting themselves apart, but not as the set apart that Jesus had in mind. It was setting themselves apart to draw attention to themselves, not to the Lord. And so once they're set free from that kind of typical stereotype, then they're free to pursue learning, which leads us to what Paul does say about teaching and learning. Are you guys with me? I know this is a lot. Okay. So an important part of the message that Paul wants to give is actually very easy for us to miss given everything else that we're reading in here and we have the tendency to get frustrated with what we read and then just skip by this because you can kind of gloss over this when you're frustrated. But he says quite clearly that a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, the, the wording here trips us up a bit because we assume that when he says quietly and with all submissiveness, that the women are supposed to sit and listen to the teaching of a man. Like, you should be quiet. Don't talk. Silent. But it actually doesn't say that in verse 11. It could just as easily say that women are to sit and listen in full submission to God in the same way that men are to sit and listen in full submission to God. In fact, one translation says it this way. They must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. And so what Paul's actually stating is that women are to be learners. They're actually to be disciples in the same way that men are to be in full submission to God. And so Paul's general conviction is that women, just like men, must be allowed to learn and to develop the gifts that God has given them so that they can participate in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, just like men. Now then, Paul goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Briefly, that word quiet is really interesting. 
Um, it does not mean to be silent. In fact, one of the translators of the ESV version of the Bible argues that when they were translating the ESV, they wanted, a handful of them, wanted to use a different word instead of quiet because they didn't, they felt like it, it, it sounded too much like silent and that wasn't what the original text was hinting at. Uh, what it was hinting at was more well-ordered or in quietness, like as in a posture to learn. But, but the handful of men that sat on this, this team to translate the ESV were outvoted by another group like they were outnumbered, and so they went with quiet. And so it is unfair that we read that in what we assume is silence, because that's not exactly what it's saying. So why does Paul go on to say that women must be under the authority of a man? Well, one perspective is that the largest temple in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was, in fact, the goddess over a female-only cult in which women kept men in their place, sort of. So if you were writing to a group of people in Ephesus and telling that, them that because of the work of Jesus Christ, all the ways in which the culture has organized male and female roles have now been rethought, you might as well avoid the opposite misunderstanding that you're not trying to just recreate the Artemis cult, but on the other side. And so we're not trying to just say that women ought to rule over men, nor are we saying that men ought to rule over women. But rather, what Paul's saying is that men and women alike should be allowed to pursue the way of Jesus together in harmony. Another perspective, not to minimize that one, but an opinion that, um, more of an opinion that our elders have been drawn to, that I'm drawn to, is that when these words teach and authority are used together, they're actually making a statement. And though syntactically these words teach and have authority are two different words, two different things, it's actually pretty close to one thing because the authority that was exercised in the early church was done through the word of God and not from a hierarchical status. And I think that the early church recognized word-based authority or a teaching authority. And there was something that Paul saw in these women in Ephesus that was usurping the doctrinal authority that was given to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And so my opinion, though I know many might disagree, is that it isn't teaching that Paul's taking issue with these women, or that, that, that um, it isn't teaching that Paul is taking issue with these women. It's actually their desire to disrupt the gathering of believers and what it is that the elders are teaching in order to present their own teachings as authoritative and leading the body of believers astray. And I think given the context that this is written in, the whole first chapter of Timothy, 1 Timothy, is about what? It's about people in the church swerving from a good heart and a pure conscience and being led astray in vain discussions and myths and speculations. And they've disregarded the law and the ability that the law has to identify their error and lead them back into the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's what it says in chapter one. And so Paul is deeply concerned that there were elders put in place to keep the church on the rails, so to speak. And the church is getting off course as a result of these women that are usurping the authority of the elders that, that, that the elders have been given in order to protect the doctrine of the church, and yet they're coming in and they're teaching a different way. And I do not think that we can make the leap to believe that this is all kinds of teaching for all time. I'll talk more about this next week because this is sort of a two-part thing as we talk about eldership next week. 
uh, I do believe that God has reserved the office of elder for males. And this isn't because of some hierarchical structure, as much as I believe that there's a gender specification given to the role of elder in chapter three as an overseer and guardian of the doctrine of the church. Much like the way that God has charged men to be the head of their households, and I know some may not like that terminology, but men, you don't lead with an iron, an iron fist. My wife and I get into premarital counseling with people and we go into Ephesians 5 and we talk through that passage. And I'll tell you what, I've never once had to step up into my house and be like, Heather, you need to do what I say. I'm the man of this house. In fact, my wife is often the role of the Holy Spirit, I'll be honest. The, wife, my, the, the Lord uses my wife in profound ways to lead and guide us. Like, I lean on that. We pray together. We seek the Lord together. I know that if there ever was a thing that came down in our marriage where it was like, I feel adamant about this, I think in all conviction that we need to go this way, I know that my wife would be like, I'm with you because I trust you. But I do not have to lord myself over her. This is the same in the church. The elders of the church do not rule as we understand ruling in America. And I hate using that word because our English messes it up. Our elders pray for and serve and love and protect and guide the church. That's our role. Not to rule over her and slam a fist over her and make you follow us. That is not what God has asked us to do. But unfortunately, many have limited the giftedness of females in the church and restricted their ability to teach the church as a result of this passage. And when I look at the gifts given to believers in Ephesians 4.11, what are those gifts? The fivefold that we often call them, right? Pastor, teacher, apostle, prophet, and evangelist. And we, when we see those lifted out, listed out in 4.11, what we realize is there, there's no gender specification given to those gifts. That, that's why we have a female pastor on our staff. We don't believe there's a gender specification assigned to those gifts. And in fact, that word pastor is only in Ephesians 4 once. In the totality of the New Testament, it's the only place that you'll find that word pastor. And it isn't given a gender specification. Most often, that is actually referred to as a shepherd. And so we do not see a gender specification given to the gifts of God. They're for men and women, but I believe we do see a distinction in chapter three with regards to the office of elder, which we'll talk more about next week. But N.T. Wright says this, women must have the space and leisure to study and learn in their own way, not in order that they may muscle in and take over leadership as in the Artemis cult, but so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of learning, teaching, and leadership God is giving to them. Then Paul adds this little comment about Adam and Eve, which is like the real stinger of this whole thing at the end. I'll unpack this a little bit. He says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what is it that this passage is saying? I believe that Paul's referencing back to a created order, but not with the intent to state that there was a hierarchy per se 
but to reference what happened in the garden. Adam was formed first, then Eve created out of Adam, and Adam knew of the tree of good and evil and knew that God had told him he could not eat, that he could eat from any tree within the garden except for this one. That if he ate from that one, he would eat of it and he shall surely die, is what the Lord told him. God had given that command to Adam in hopes that Adam would protect and watch out for Eve, that he would guard her from error, that he would share that information. This wasn't about lording himself over the woman, but it was about protection and guiding her properly. And so who did the serpent go after? Eve, the one who did not have the information and was more easily deceived as a result of being ill-informed. Adam was the one that was commanded this. And so whose fault was it that she ate the fruit? It was Adam's, technically. Like, he knew better. He didn't protect her. But in fact, he watched her eat the fruit, and then he partook of the fruit himself. Much like the elders that had been put place to oversee the church in Ephesus, whose fault is it when these people in Ephesus are being led astray? That's Paul's talking about. Whose fault is it? Ultimately, people make their own decisions. But I do believe it's the responsibility of the elders to teach the church proper doctrine, to establish guardrails for the church to function within. And that doesn't mean that others can't teach, including women. In fact, Paul taught in the churches and was not an elder himself in a particular church. The only restrictions I would say that that need to be on a teacher in the church are probably those found in the deacon section that we'll look at in a few weeks. And also that we're told in James that not many should be teachers because Teachers are judged with a greater strictness. There's something significant about those who teach the word of God, whether that be from a stage, in a home, in a large group, in a small group, men or women, the teachers should be held accountable for the things that they say. What about verse 15? And I'll start wrapping it up. Oh, are women saved through childbirth? (laughs) Does that not sound crazy when you hear that? What he's not saying is that a woman's redemption is her ability to give birth. Because that would mean that that your life as a woman has to fit into a really narrow kind of narrative, right? And we know from life that there's a lot of people who don't fit into that narrative. Some women are single. Some women may be single for their whole entire lives. Some may never have children. He's not saying that a woman's redemption from the whole Eve debacle is her ability to birth children. Rather, what he's saying is it's through the woman's ability to give birth that salvation actually entered into this world in Jesus Christ. And so he's not, he's not trying to put every woman into a particular like narrow narrative, but rather is saying that through this gift of childbearing, salvation actually entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And so again, I think how Eugene Peterson renders this passage is actually really helpful. He says this, since prayer is at the bottom of all of this, what I might want mostly is for men to pray, not shaking angry fists at at enemies, but raising holy hands to God. And I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God, not primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do, for they should study and be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Adam was made first, then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, and Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness. And gathering it all up into maturity, you can depend on this. And I think that's a really amazing way of putting the truths that are in this passage that at least on the surface seem really, really difficult for us to swallow. I'll close on this. 
the practical side of this, um, the many are asking is, so will a woman teach on a Sunday at Anthem? And if so, when is that going to happen? And all I can tell you is that the discussion is starting now. And at some point, it, it will happen. However, this isn't a fight for equality in which we need a female counterpart to Chris and we're trying to get a 50-50 thing in here. This is about looking at the holistic view of who God has placed in our care at Anthem CDA and saying, what gifts and abilities has God given you? How do we equip and empower you to use those gifts? Some might be on the stage, some might be behind a guitar, some might be serving in kids, some might be leading a community group, some might be evangelists out in the community, some might have prophetic words for people, some it might be prayer, but in all things, you all have been gifted and equipped in some way. How do we as a church see those gifts and begin to release you in those? The other reality, the practical side of this is that I'm hired to be the lead pastor of this church. There's 52 Sundays a year. So it's not like we're saying, man, we need to find half the Sundays that become a female and you know, half that are male because this is an equality thing. This is like, who has God brought us and how do we utilize the gifts and the talents that God has brought to this church? And we wanna walk this out with you as we prayerfully consider how the Lord would lead us in the future in this. That means prayerfully considering women who possess the gift of teaching and making sure that they live a life of humility with the desire to equip the church, not to gain a platform, and that goes for men as well. Our elders will guard, will guard and protect the pulpit and make sure that those who teach are being led by the Lord to do so. That is part of our role as elders in this church. Years ago, my wife and I taught on a Sunday morning. There were those that questioned that, that had a hard time with that. However, if you know my wife, you know my wife is an amazingly gifted teacher. Like, she's awesome. Far better than I am. And after that Sunday, many commented on how much they learned from my wife and asked, when will she do that again? Which made me wonder if people find it helpful and it aids in their walk with Jesus, and we have gifted and capable women in our church that can share, why wouldn't we equip them and empower them to do so? So actually, here's a really practical encouragement that I'm gonna leave you guys with. And I'm gonna ask you to stand, and I'm gonna pray for you as I dismiss us this morning. Can we take a deep breath? Here's my encouragement to you guys, to you guys. In light of what we've learned in 1 Timothy, here's my encouragement to you. I want you to find a woman, a female, and not find one. I'm not asking you to go find women. <laughs> uh, please don't take this wrong. I want you to prayerfully find a female in your life, and I want you to empower her today. Love her and support her. Let her voice be heard. Let the skills that God has given her be used for God's glory and don't suppress that in her. Let her thrive as the person that God has created her to be, amen? That is the best model of Jesus that we can be to the women in our church. Empower them, encourage them, equip them. And I pray that our church is that for both Males and females. I mean, our church historically for 14 years, please understand, women have played every role in our church 
80% of our staff are females. They've played every role in our church with the exception of ever teaching on a Sunday morning. And I've done that in tandem with my wife before. So it's not like there's a massive shift happening, but we can be more intentional in the church in how we view the role of men and women and how we empower one another. Do we actually believe that God has created both men and women distinct from one another to actually complement each other in such a way that we paint a better picture of the gospel of Jesus to the world as a result of us being together? Do we believe that? Can we live in that? Can we practice that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, um, God, for this time. I don't take it lightly that uh, you give me these opportunities. I pray, Jesus, that all of us, no matter what our opinion, perspective is on this passage, would be a people that would be learners and studiers, that we would desire to go to the word, to study it for ourselves, not just believe what Chris says, but go study it for themselves, God. We thank you for your word that you've given us, that we can study it and know it personally, and we do not need a mediator to necessarily parse it for us. And so I pray for your church that there be a fire within us to draw near to you, to literally consume your word, to eat the scroll, to say, to be a praying church that we continue to take these things before the living God and ask, God, how have you called us to function in 2023 in Coeur And would we be a church, God, that would be willing to take a risk on people that the world has not taken a risk on, God, men or women. I pray that we are a church that sees giftedness, equips giftedness, empowers giftedness, and releases people to be who it is that you've called them to be and does not suppress the gifts of God in any shape or form, regardless of their gender. And I pray your hand be upon your church as we process this, as we wrestle through this, God, that you'd give us grace, that you'd give us humility, that you'd give us hearts to learn and to draw near to you, that you'd give us peace in our hearts and the ability to walk this out in such a way, Jesus, that you are honored in our midst. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.